Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. There's an amazing exhibit going on right now that might never have been more pertinent, and it's called Louder Than Words, Rock, Power, and Politics, going on at the museum, not the museum, but the museum in Washington, D.C. They have partnered with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to put together an incredible display of rock artifacts pertaining to politics and power. It's going on until July 31st, 2017. For those of you who do not know, and shame on you if you don't, the museum promotes, explains, and defends free expression and the five freedoms of the First Amendment. They are, and this is for the Chrysler Cordoba, Religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. Now, our guest, Patty Rule, is the director of exhibit development at the museum, overseeing a talented team of writers and editors who produce the museum's permanent and changing exhibits. Before coming to the museum in 2007, she worked at USA Today in a variety of editing roles. She is a founding editor, in fact, of USA Today. So if you stay at a Hampton Inn and a paper shoots under your door at 6 a.m., please think of padding. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I know you've got Bob Dylan's Honer harmonica there. Indeed we do, as well as his handwritten lyrics to the times they are changing, which gives me the shivers every time I look at it. You can see him scratching out phrases, and um, just to see it in his handwriting, you can really kind of see his creative process there, writing that song that spoke not just at that moment in the 1960s, but really for all time. It's kind of a song for the ages. Original pieces of paper that these artists wrote out the lines of these songs on. I mean, I know some of them, they just come out like a flash. Others of them would be, you know, sort of scratched on and words replaced and things. And, you know, a lot of times they're on um, hotel stationery. You know, you can see the actual, you know, hotel stationery, which, by the way, back in the day, the hotel stationery was much nicer and less generic. But... Um, <laughs> What what can you talk about about some of the lyric sheets you have there? Because, I mean, I got chills myself just looking from from place to place at, at the, the Hall of Fame uh, and seeing, you know, it's it's kind of like the uh, musical equivalent of seeing the original Declaration of Independence. It really is. And, you know, when we, you talk about um, written on hotel stationery, we have um, James Brown's handwritten lyrics to his 1969 Black Empowerment song, I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing, Open Up the Door, I'll Get It Myself. So you see, you can imagine him, maybe it was late at night after a concert appearance, and he's just scrawling the words, and you can see the Ramada Inn uh, logo there at the top of the piece of paper. We also have the notebook um, in which um, Bruce Springsteen wrote the Born in the USA lyrics. And again, there's just something about seeing something in someone's handwriting that really personalizes um, that song in a way that um, hearing it on the radio doesn't. A book called Red Channels in which it would list the name of performers who were suspected communists and broadcasters would get that book and they would know here's who not to book. So they were you know, prevented from performing on the air because of what their political thoughts were. You have Jimi Hendrix's uh, Woodstock Stratocaster guitar and if I'm not mistaken he played his famous version of the uh, Star Spangled Banner on that guitar. You're absolutely right. He did. And that was uh, a, a landmark moment in rock history. Um, you know, he, it was the final day of Woodstock, the sort of peace, love and music festival in, in upstate New York. And um, he was the closing act. And one of the songs that he played was the Star Spangled Banner, an electrified version of it. And the way he, 
he performed that song, um, people heard in his guitar riffs the sound of machine guns being fired in Vietnam, the chaos in the streets of America at the time as you know students are rising up against war and injustice against black Americans. So people added their own feelings and passions to that song. You you have, and this is this is just such an incredible artifact. Uh, John Lennon's bed-in guitar, which he also is playing in uh, Give Peace a Chance, and it, and it provides that sort of uh, half rock and roll, half uh, almost hearkening back to Pete Seeger, uh, just just raw sound. So we have, art, we have actually, we have you know, Bruce Springsteen's um, draft card, um, his, his uh, selective service card, and then his 4F designation because he had been injured in a motorcycle accident so he went to be to take his physical and he was not passed for service in the military but he talks about how it didn't seem right to him that his friends who were largely black americans were being sent to war when kids who were in college weren't being sent that didn't seem fair to him and then we have the um the outfit that d snyder of twisted sister wore to to testify before a senate committee about that and of course, you know, everyone was expecting him to come in wearing a three-piece suit and button down, but <laughs> he wore skin-tight jeans and mascara, he said. Um, we've had a lot of political heavyweights um, casually stroll through. I think when you're a bigger political heavyweight, you don't get to casually do things. <laughs> um, we've had, you know, presidents come through, you know, certainly President Barack Obama came through, Michelle Obama came through. Um, we haven't seen Mr. Trump, but we welcome him if he wants to come through. Not allowing the other side to speak is kind of uh, depriving yourself the right to look at their playbook so to speak. It's like, well, if you really feel strongly about your own opinion, you should know the other side's opinion so that you can compare and contrast the benefits of yours, the benefits of theirs, the drawbacks of both. And I personally, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of that thing the First Amendment does to us all. Shouting down people who are espousing things that you don't like. That's not what the First Amendment is all about. You know, the First Amendment says, you can say something that I completely disagree with and that even offends me, but in this country, you still have the right to say it. First Amendment gives you the right to protest and assemble uh, against something. But I think the First Amendment also says he's got a right to say what he says, whether you or I find it heinous or agree with it entirely. Um, so that's what it's all about. That's what um, we're living in exciting times for the First Amendment with you know, all the protest movements that have been erupting um, here in D.C. and around the country. So um, we'll, we'll be looking forward to these debates in coming, coming months and weeks. Due to some violent content. Parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mr. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright lock position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... Truth 
Good evening. It is Saturday, February 4th, 2017, episode 254. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show, Public Enemies Handwritten Fight the Power Lyrics, Madonna's Like a Virgin Jewelry, Bill Clinton's Saxophone, Bob Dylan's Honer Harmonica, they're all symbols of free expression that comes from popular music and they're all part of an exhibit called Louder Than Words. It's at the Museum in Washington, D.C. in partnership with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Our guest tonight is Patty Rule of the Museum, and she's going to take us on a trip through the First Amendment as seen through the eyes of popular music in one of our very, very favorite interviews ever. So, two, three, four, get with the downbeat. Tonight on The Tom Gully Show. Ladies and gentlemen, the chief hope of our enemies is to divide the United States along racial and religious lines and thereby conquer us. Let's not spread prejudice. A divided America is a weak America. Through our behavior, we encourage the respect of our children and make them better neighbors to all races and religions. Remind them that being good neighbors has helped make our country great and kept her free. Thank you. There's an amazing exhibit going on right now that might never have been more pertinent, and it's called Louder Than Words, Rock, Power, and Politics, going on at the Museum, not the museum, but the Newseum in Washington, D.C. They have partnered with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to put together an incredible display of rock artifacts pertaining to politics and power. It's going on until July 31st, 2017. For those of you who do not know, and shame on you if you don't, the museum promotes, explains, and defends free expression and the five freedoms of the First Amendment. They are, and this is for the Chrysler Cordoba, Religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. Now, our guest, Patty Rule, is the director of exhibit development at the museum, overseeing a talented team of writers and editors who produce the museum's permanent and changing exhibits. Before coming to the museum in 2007, she worked at USA Today in a variety of editing roles. She is a founding editor, in fact, of USA Today. So if you stay at a Hampton Inn and a paper shoots under your door at 6 a.m., please think of padding. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Okay. Now, I know this exhibit uh, for a time was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But when you, I know these things don't happen overnight. When you first got the idea of doing this, did you have any idea of the massive jackpot you would hit, considering both the purpose of the museum and the exhibit and the somewhat carnival-like atmosphere and the uh, massive amounts of protest and dissent that we currently have uh, regarding the uh, recent administration change. Well, we definitely could not have anticipated that. Um, we were so excited. We've been talking with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland for a couple of years and just kind of batting around various things. And then they came to us with this idea um, about a year and a half ago, and we thought, hmm, that sounds fantastic. And it did open in Cleveland in time for the Republican National Convention last summer. And we were able to um, – it, it closed in Cleveland. It came here, and we opened in time for the inauguration of President Donald J. Trump. 
Great. Now, before we get to what people really want to hear about, which is the stuff, you know, what you actually have there, mm-hmm. um, many times, as the uh, exhibit appropriately addresses, rock and roll has crossed paths with, you know, politics, culture, power. What was sort of the standard for the items in this exhibit as it related to that? Well, we were really looking at kind of the significant social movements that um, have occurred over the past 50 years. The exhibit starts in the Eisenhower administration and comes up through Barack Obama and uh, President Trump. And um, so we have like the March on Washington. We have we go from the Vietnam War to the War on Terror, from women's rights to gender equality. Um, Every significant social movement of the past 50 years that you can imagine, really musicians have had a role in uplifting their voices to fight against injustice to make people think differently about the world. Great. Now, let's get to some of the things in the exhibit. The first thing I'd like to ask you about is something I saw on your website. I see a Leonard Skinner jacket, and that's of particular interest uh, to listeners of this program, as we had one of the survivors of the Leonard Skinner plane crash on our show. What's up with that jacket? (laughs) Okay, that jacket refers to sort of the Watergate era and musicians talking about, you know, um, corruption by politicians. Uh, Neil Young had written a song, I think it was called Southern Man, in which he's kind of pushing back up against segregation and um, the, the governorship of, of, of George Wallace of Alabama. And Leonard Skinner kind of pushed back at Neil Young um, with their song um, saying, hey, you know, we, we, did, we don't blame all Northerners for Watergate, so just the same, you shouldn't paint all all Southerners with the, with the brush of being racist. So it's really, um, you know, we, when we say rock in this exhibit, we're really broadly meaning popular music because the exhibit includes um, country, hip-hop, soul, R&B, everything you can imagine. Folk, I know you've got Bob Dylan's Honer harmonica there. Indeed we do, as well as his handwritten lyrics to the times they are changing, which gives me the shivers every time I look at it. You can see him scratching out phrases, and um, just to see it in his handwriting, you can really kind of see his creative process there, writing that song that spoke not just at that moment in the 1960s, but really for all time. It's kind of a song for the ages. Well, and I'm going to jump ahead here. I actually prepare Mm -hmm. for these things, but when Mm -hmm. I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of my favorite things about it were the lyric sheets, were the the original pieces of paper that these artists wrote out the lines of these songs on. I mean, I know some of them, they just come out like a flash. Others of them would be, you know, sort of scratched on and words replaced and things. And, you know, a lot of times they're on um, hotel stationery. You know, you mm-hmm, can see mm-hmm. the actual, you know, hotel stationery, which, by the way, Back in the day, the hotel stationery was much nicer and less generic. But um, <laughs> what what can you talk about about some of the lyric sheets you have there? Because, I mean, I got chills myself just looking from, from place to place at, at the, the Hall of Fame uh, and seeing, you know, it's, it's kind of like the uh, musical equivalent of seeing the original Declaration of Independence. It really is. And, you know, when we, you talk about um, written on hotel stationery, we have um, James Brown's handwritten lyrics to his 1969 Black Empowerment song, I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing, Open Up the Door, I'll Get It Myself. So you see, you can imagine him, maybe it was late at night after a concert appearance, and he's just scrawling the words, and you can see the Ramada Inn uh, logo there at the top of the piece of paper. We also have the notebook um, in which um, Bruce Springsteen wrote the Born in the USA lyrics. And, again, there's just something about 
seeing something in someone's handwriting that really personalizes um, that song in a way that um, hearing it on the radio doesn't. Right. It's like it's that's them. They did it. It's it's uh, it's so very 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 personal. You think of the produced record or even seeing him live in concert and it seems so elaborate but when you see those lyrics they're so personal and so um kind of right from the the well right from the spring of where it all began uh, i also understand you have public enemies handwritten fight the power lyrics we do, we do, and we talk. You know, we talk about rap and hip hop, and um, the pushback that um, many hip hop artists have gotten for the things that they were trying to say when, when Ice T released the song "Cop Killer." Um, huge backlash that his record company endured because of that. And frankly, um, rock artists are no strangers to censorship. We've got a big wall that shows censorship, starting with Elvis Presley and going all the way through Beyonce at last year's Super Bowl. So frequently when rock musicians are saying provocative things, the people in power are threatened by them and push back against it. Uh, you're, 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 you must be reading my mail because early rock and, <laughs> early rock and roll songs were, uh, and that's one of the kind of the hallmarks of when I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is when you first enter it, there's a, a long bank of television sets that shows people you know, pastors, politicians, people in communities just railing against rock and roll music. And, and, you know, it's the devil. It's the coming of Satan. It's the worst thing ever. And they would close down theaters. They would make it illegal to play rock and roll music in certain places. But it was kind of the form of rock and roll. It wasn't necessarily the fact that the songs were anti-establishment or anti-political lyrically or from subject matter. It was just the form itself which was a lot of times sexual in nature. You mentioned the Eisenhower administration. When do you think that the songs really got political in, in addressing a specific political attribute of the country, you know, wherever, wherever that country might be? Mm-hmm. Well, I say um, I would say you know with the exhibit we kind of start with the Eisenhower administration. So we have like you know Pete Seeger. We have like his um, his banjo sure. cover, um, and of course he is a guy who's singing for you know rights for workers and various other sort of social justice causes. But he's again getting pushed back against because in the 1940s he was a member of the Communist Party. And we have um, a, a, a book called Red Channels in which it would list the name of performers who were suspected communists. And broadcasters would get that book, and they would know here's who not to book. So they were, you know, prevented from performing on the air because of what their political thoughts were. And then you have Elvis Presley, who wasn't so much a political performer, but his very embodiment of his art form was political, in that he was taking R&B, sort of black music, and um, bringing it to a much broader audience, bringing white kids and black kids together to dance together. And again, back in the late 1950s, um, you know, we have concert posters from the colored performance of Little Richard and then the white performance of an act. Right. So at like, that time, concerts were segregated. It's hard for people to imagine today when you think of how broad-based music is for, for all, all genres and how everybody really enjoys pretty much all genres. Well, yeah, I mean, Pat Boone was, was kind of uh, excoriated back in the day for, for liberating African-American music. Uh, you had Elvis's hips, which weren't even allowed to be mm-hmm. showed on television. And then the Beatles came along and demanded, no, we will have absolutely no segregation whatsoever uh, in our audiences. And uh, even the Sex Pistols remarked when they came to the United States, their favorite place was the South because there was no class segregation. There was no uh, racial segregation in those those concerts. But 
you have Jimi Hendrix's uh, Woodstock Stratocaster guitar. And if I'm not mistaken, he played his famous version of the uh, Star Spangled Banner on that guitar. You're absolutely right. He did. And that was uh, a, a landmark moment in rock history. Um, you know, he it was the final day of Woodstock, the sort of peace, love and music festival in, in upstate New York. And um, he was the closing act. And one of the songs that he played was the Star Spangled Banner, an electrified version of it. And the way he, he performed that song, um, people heard in his guitar riffs the sound of machine guns being fired in Vietnam, the chaos in the streets of America at the time as you know students are rising up against war and injustice against black Americans. So people added their own feelings and passions to that song. Um, and then we have a film where Dick Cavett is interviewing Jimi Hendrix after Woodstock, and he said, boy, that was really a controversial version. And Jimi looks at him and said, why is it controversial? I just thought it was beautiful. So people have a way of adding on to music an added level of meaning that um, that really makes it transcend and really, really gives even more power to rock and roll. Well, and truthfully, at the time, you just didn't mess with the Star Spangled Banner. I, I, I believe it was Jose Feliciano uh, at the World Series that played it. In, in kind of a flamenco or a, a you know this this uh, very innovative acapella style and people went crazy they were just they were they, they were insulted by it it was uh, again rock's power to to sort of change viewpoints and uh, and uh, you know affect the culture uh, at the at the extreme edge of it you have Bill Clinton's saxophone. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's a great moment because, you know, he's, he, he got uh, sort of dubbed the rock and roll president. Um, before he was elected, when he was on the campaign trail, he famously appeared on the late night TV show, the Arsenio Hall show, wearing his dark glasses and playing um, an Elvis Presley tune on a saxophone. And so why is he doing this? Well, he wants to reach out to his generation. You know, he's the first baby boom president. So he's reaching out to his people saying, hey, I am one of you. I like your music. You know, he talked about how much he felt really he, his, his story really resonated with Elvis Presley's story. They were both poor sons of the South. Um, and in reaching out across the generations to his own generation, um, it probably helped get him elected. Well, and, and kind of uh, at the time, I mean, we had Harry Truman once playing his piano, but uh, you didn't see politicians being that casual, you know, and Bill Clinton came out mm -hmm. and kind of said, hey, I'm one of you. I'm going to play my saxophone. I'm a real person. Uh, it, it, that was a big moment uh, in, in my life to see a, a major political candidate, you know, first of all, just to go on the Arsenio Hall show. Even that wasn't really done that frequently. Occasionally somebody would go on Carson or whatever or Dick Cavett, certainly. But uh, to see him on that show, it was like, wow, he, he really is one of us. Exactly, exactly. And now you see today, you know, um, presidents and politicians are appearing on late night shows all the time. And even, you know, parody shows like uh, Between Two Ferns with Zach Galinovsky. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's really gone. It's really gone uh, full, full circle. John Edwards announced his in his presidential run on The Daily Show. And John Stewart had to to tell him, "You understand we're a fake show, don't you? Uh, <laughs> you you have, and this is this is just such an incredible artifact. Uh, John Lennon's bed-in guitar, which he also is playing in uh, Give Peace a Chance, and it and it provides that sort of uh, half rock and roll, half uh, almost harkening back to Pete Seeger, 
just just raw sound. Uh, uh, that, that that is amazing. How did you get a hold of that, or how did is it just a, a part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame collection? And I have to I have to imagine it's one of the more popular items in your exhibit. Yeah, it is, that is one that really resonates with people. Also, when you look on the front of the guitar, um, Lennon sort of carved and etched um, little caricatures of himself and Yoko Ono, who was his wife at the time, on it. Um, and a member of the famous bed-ins were when he and Yoko um, went to uh, Canada and Amsterdam and um, uh, went to a hotel room and laid in bed and played music. It was their bed-in for peace and, of course, invited reporters and TV cameras in to capture this moment. So, and that is the guitar on which he composed Give Peace a Chance, which, again, um, a song that resonates, has resonated ever since it was written, and you always hear that song. It's always so powerful in moments of war and peace. So that's really a powerful, powerful artifact that we have, one of 162 artifacts we have in this exhibit. Wow. Uh, You know, that song, if you look at the backup singers, I think one of the Smothers Brothers is in it and stuff. It is the most eclectic group of people that you'll ever see put together. It's almost like the cover of the... uh, uh, Sergeant Pepper's album, but uh, you have Madonna's "Like a Virgin" jewelry from the 1984 <laughs> MTV Video Music Awards. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, she is like a really a searing figure in popular culture. You know, bringing you know issues of, of female empowerment and female sexuality into the mainstream. Um, you know, pretty much every move she's made, and look, you know, she's been uh, in, do, doing what she's been doing for 30 years now, and she still has the power to provoke. Um, as seen when she appeared here recently at the Women's March and um, had some pretty powerful things to say about um, about Mr. Trump. So, um, you know, musicians are always going to be pushing back against um, people in power if they don't like things that are going on politically, and certainly her voice has resonated over the past 30 years. And we have her to thank for the opening debate in Reservoir Dogs. So that's another thing. Uh, let's talk okay. about Vietnam. I mean, I think, at least in my consciousness, Vietnam was was the era where popular music or rock music really amped it up in terms of talking about what was going on politically and in the world and in our society. And I have to imagine, I mean, my grandparents would tell me, whatever you do, don't be a hippie. Just whatever (laughs) you do, do not be a hippie. Uh, I I have to imagine that your exhibit has a tremendous amount of uh, music from that time period. We do. And, you know, that's kind of the, the era when the Vietnam War really polarized the country and it polarized music as well. Um, so we have art. We have actually we have uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen's um, draft card, um, his his uh, selective service card and then his 4F designation because he had been injured in a motorcycle accident. So he went to be to take his physical and he was not passed for service in the military. But he talks about how it didn't seem right to him that his friends, who were largely black Americans, were being sent to war when kids who were in college weren't being sent. That didn't seem fair to him. So you see the seeds of his music about Vietnam veterans and how they were treated when they returned home that, you know, harken back later in the exhibit and born in the USA. Um, we also have the other side of the coin where Johnny Cash famously sang, the one on the right is the one on the left, where he's sort of excoriating folk singers for saying, hey, don't, don't tell me your politics, just make sure you get your harmonies right. That's not your role to be, <laughs> um, be political. So, you know, 
it, it, again, I mean, you know, musicians are some, some of them are wanting to be political and others of them are saying, hey, that's, that's not our role to be in that position. And we have like Sergeant Barry Sadler, the, the Ballad of the Green Beret, which was <sighs> a big hit and which came off as a, um, as a sort of, you know, giving due to the soldiers. You know, many people felt that rock stars who were singing against the war were also singing against the soldiers. Um, and that wasn't particularly the case. It was more against the concept of the war and why we were there in the first place, but not against the individual soldiers who were fighting it. So, you know, that, that, that rift in the country was reflected in the music industry as well. Oh, you, like I said, you're reading my mail here because I actually had the Ballad of the Green Beret written down. Uh, I'll get to that in a second, but uh, because I am a huge Springsteen fan, he actually talks in his famous live compilation about when he went to be drafted and you know he has a, a lot of his uh, music involves his father and his relationship with his father and certainly his recent autobiography does but the the whole thing about his dad asking him what happened and he said well they didn't take me and his dad said that's good that's good you know he was he was a very patriotic man but he was so worried about his son and the song born in the USA it, it sometimes strikes me as a little ironic when they play that as a big giant anthem at you know ball games and things like yeah yeehaw USA. Where if you really listen to the lyrics of that song, it's kind of an indictment of the Vietnam War. It absolutely is. You know, we have a um, we have a really powerful and, and kind of funny video where we talk about politicians trying to co-opt rock music for oh. their campaigns. And Born in the USA, when you think about it on a superficial level, you're right. It's like a real rah-rah, anthemic rallying cry. Yay, we're Americans. But when you read the lyrics, um, and Ronald Reagan wanted to use that as his campaign song, and Bruce Springsteen said, I'm not, I'm not sure he's read the lyrics, because the lyrics are really criticizing the United States for the poor treatment that Vietnam veterans received when they came home from the war. So often politicians want to embrace um, rock stars because they're the most popular people of our time, and um, the message doesn't always get across what the what the rock stars are trying to say with their songs. Well, you you really should be hosting this show because I have another <laughs> question here. What do you think about the appropriation of rock songs by candidates who either don't get permission or the you know to share the beliefs of the creators of those songs, and why are they allowed to do that? I. I I think I know why, and that is that many times the artists sell the licensing rights and they have very little to do with who gets to buy them for what purpose. Uh, the the actual um, uh, performance rights and royalties, they get the money from that directly always. But uh, yeah, the, that's, that's going on more and more and more. Um, but uh, back to uh, the great ballad of the Green Beret, do you have a section, or, or, or other than Johnny Cash and uh, uh, the Battle of the Green Beret, do you have other songs that are, are very, very patriotic and very, very championing the American spirit? Well, we, yeah, we have a section about sort of the post-9-11 era, um, and we have Alan Jackson's guitar that he played when he played um, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning? Um, and other sort of, um, uh, I think Charlie Daniels Band also had a famous uh, post-9-11 song that was a little more um, sort of kick-butt rock and roll song. But yes, we do try to reflect that sort of, you know, patriotism is another thing that comes into question. You know, um, you talked about the national anthem as being one of those sort of the third rail that you don't touch that, but also things like, you know, burning the flag, which has become an issue in the recent campaign where Donald Trump sang you know, people who burn the flag should have lose their citizenship for a while, but that's something that 
the Supreme Court is protected as a, as a free speech, uh, element of free speech. So here we're trying to tell people about free expression and the five freedoms of the First Amendment, and this exhibit really tells that story in a really powerful way. Now, the Sex Pistols, another big favorite of mine, I don't, I don't know how much outside the United States this exhibit covers, but in terms of politics and power, I mean, they outright banned airplay in England for obviously good, you know, the reasons of, of the government and the queen being attacked with anarchy in the UK and God save the queen. Uh, do you have uh, concrete examples of the government actually taking very, very, very specific action against any artist? Absolutely. You know, we've got a whole wall of censorship um, where it just, you know, we, you know, we talk about the Parents Music Resource Center. You know, remember when Tipper Gore and a group of other powerful Washington wives um, were taking on the record industry saying songs should be labeled so that young people wouldn't accidentally stumble into what they saw as inappropriate content for them. And we have the, um, the outfit that Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister wore to, to testify before a Senate committee about that. And of course, you know, everyone was expecting him to come in wearing a three-piece suit and button down, but <laughs> he wore skin-tight jeans and mascara, he said, um, and, and, a, and a t-shirt and a, you know, torn up looking um, uh, blue, blue jacket. So um, we, we do talk about uh, censorship because that's been happening throughout this time period. You know, whenever people are challenging people in power, people in power don't tend to take that lightly and sometimes push back um, with great force. Now, I'm really interested in, in anything you have about gender equality and uh, what kind of things do you have there? I mean, girls just want to have fun. Some people look at it and they say, well, that's, that's a little bit uh, dismissive. But then some people say, hey, well, that was a song that said, hey, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Uh, what, what do you have in the exhibit to address gender equality? Mm-hmm. We have, um, well, you know, we kind of have, you know, there's, there's sort of different different eras of the women's rights movements. We have a, 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 a an electric guitar that Joni Mitchell used, and she's, you know, sort of famously reflecting on feminism and what it means in relationships. We have um, a jacket that Melissa Etheridge wore. Um, she's been a champion for um, gender equality. Um, we have some some uh, Lady Gaga was represented in the exhibit, and of course we'll be looking for what kind of statement she makes at the Super Bowl on Sunday. So um, we also have um, a Chrissy Hines guitar, uh, again, sort of a um, pioneering female guitarist who just was, just said, you know, I'm not about feminism or about any cause. I just want to do my own thing and not let people question me whether because I'm a woman or whatever. So um, that's another powerful through line in this exhibit. We talk about so many of the major social justice movements of our of the past fifty years. Yeah, and and she uh, was in the news when uh, Rush Limbaugh was on his ascendancy because he used the uh, "Born in Ohio" uh, opening riff uh, for his program for for quite some time. Um, have you had any performances associated with the exhibit, or do you plan to? We're hoping to. We're hoping to. We're reaching out to different people, but it's really hard to get people because they're either recording or on concert tours. So um, this is exhibit is going to be here at the museum through July 31st. So we're certainly working to that end to get somebody uh, to come here and, and talk about rock and politics and um, what it all means today. Billy, Don't Be a Hero, the sappiest pros to protest song ever <laughs> in your mind? <laughs> I'm, you're gonna have to tell me a, t- a few bars of that. What was that about? Billy, oh, don't be a hero. Billy, Billy, don't be a hero. Was a pop hit in the '70s, and uh, and as he started to go, she said, "Billy, keep your head low." It was about a guy going to war who never came back. 
it was very sappy. It was a bit, a very sort of saccharine pop hit. Um, what mm-hmm. what do you hope that the exhibit communicates to people, or what message would you like them to take away from it, if indeed you even have an, uh, a concrete expectation in that regard? I mean, a, a, a museum or museum like yours, uh, you know, to a certain extent, it's like come here, take take from it what you will. Mm. Well, we really hope that people get an appreciation for the First Amendment and free expression. I think the First Amendment is sometimes a um, an abstract concept, like you have to know what is that First Amendment that you so kindly spelled out for us in the beginning of this interview. But this exhibit really shows um, rock and roll is really the sound of freedom. And the First Amendment guarantees artists and all Americans the right to speak their mind and to march and protest and assemble. And this exhibit really powerfully tells the story of what free expression and the First Amendment is all about. Well, so I we hope people come out with a renewed understanding and appreciation of it. Well, I have to say that most people that listen to this program, they know, and I keep saying it over and over again, the First Amendment protects you from government censorship. Uh, a lot of times nowadays people, you know, will get kicked off a social media site and say, you, you, you know, infringing on my First Amendment rights. And it, no, no, the First <laughs> Amendment protects you from the government, your boss, government, right. <laughs> uh, your neighbor, uh, certainly me. I can censor you all day. The government's just not allowed to do that. Now, the museum is located in the heart of the beast, right on Pennsylvania Avenue between the Capitol and and the White House, have you haven't had any political heavyweights or anyone, you know, just sort of casually stroll through unexpectedly there? Um, we've had a lot of political heavyweights um, casually stroll through. I think when you're a bigger political heavyweight, you don't get to casually do things. <laughs> um, we've had, you know, presidents come through, you know, certainly President Barack Obama came through, Michelle Obama came through. Um, we haven't seen Mr. Trump, but we'd welcome him if he wants to come through. Um, we have movie premieres here, all sorts of events, weddings, um, uh, press conferences and things. You know, uh, the, FBI, the FBI sometimes announces their new top ten list from the museum. So um, oh, wow. we welcome anyone through our doors to, who wants to find out more about free expression in the First Amendment. Well, if you're going to Washington, you should certainly stop by. Now, um, do you have a particularly favorite exhibit personally? yourself or is that Mm. something you probably shouldn't say because you're the director of all things rock (laughs) and roll right now well i mean i love louder than words um our permanent exhibits um we have all of the pulitzer prize winning photographs since they began giving out the award in 1942 and that's an exhibit that's always a popular one among our visitors and really um speaks to the power of photojournalism and the importance of a free press we also have eight sections of the Berlin Wall, and that tells the powerful story of how um, that wall could not keep free expression and um, freedom of information from going through, and it ultimately led to that wall going down in 1989. Um, another changing exhibit that we have is the FBI exhibit, which we've had since we opened, and we've got such artifacts as um, the Unabomber's cabin and a car that the 9-11 terrorists left at Dulles Airport. We talk about, you know, how the press and law enforcement sometimes are at odds, but sometimes work together. So these are just a few of the things that we have. We have 15 galleries, 15 theaters, um, all sorts of things, interactive exhibits for people to explore. We also have some virtual reality experiences that we have here that people can examine that new technology that's happening now in storytelling. So come on down to the museum and and, um, spend the day or two. Well, I'll tell you, everybody that I've talked about uh, the museum 
you know, too, has raved about it. And one of the very biggest things they do mention is uh, Ted Kaczynski's cabin is in there. I mean, that's it. It is indeed. Yes. And, and of course, uh, doing my homework, I believe you were interviewed on, was it Sky News about the Camelot photography? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's coming back this fall. You know, this is the 100th anniversary of uh, John F. Kennedy's um, birth. And so this fall, we are bringing back one of our most popular exhibits ever, which is the Kennedy photography of Jacques Lowe. Um, Jacques Lowe was the personal photographer of the Kennedy family, and he captured these really rare, intimate moments that came to define the the legacy that was Camelot. And this was unusual because... um, Kennedy uh, and, and Mrs. Kennedy really understood the power of the still image and the power of the image to tell a story. And of course, after his death, Mrs. Kennedy, as people are seeing in the movie, Jackie, that's in theaters now, um, really shaped that legacy of his presidency that is now known as Camelot. So we'll have these incredible images that um, were really a showstopper when they appeared here, I guess, four years ago. Now, are you a fan of the rock and roll, uh, Patty? Because you should be. Your name sounds like you should be the lead singer of an all-girl punk band. You know, Pat, Pat, <laughs> it, it would be a punk band with a very bad voice. I'm I'm sorry to say. I would that, that would be wonderful <laughs> if I could, but I don't think I can. <laughs> uh, do, now, well, the show starts at eight. Doors open at seven. Uh, <laughs> right. do, do, who who is? Do you have a favorite artist? I think in this exhibit, you know, I really like seeing um, the Bob Dylan lyrics and the Bruce Springsteen lyrics because part of my job is writing and um, to see the creative process when someone is just putting pencil to paper in that sort of intimate moment of, of creating something. Um, that's really a powerful, powerful moment for me. And so I, and I really admire both of those artists. So those are, those are really fun to see. Yeah. I can't tell you uh, as a, a writer myself it, and just as a fan of the music, uh, it, it's, it's like seeing the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. I mean, it is absolutely, I got, I, you said it best, uh, as you have throughout the entire interview, uh, you get chills looking and, and the, the hall and I'm, I'm sure the exhibit have just a tremendous amount of these original lyric sheets that, that just will blow you away. They're, they're amazing. Uh, they had in Springsteen's exhibit, uh, they had, the uh, a pizza box and uh <laughs> bruce had written on on the top of it do not eat this food signed the boss and the the apocryphal tale is that's where the, the name got started uh was he 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 was known as the gut bomb king he could eat any kind of fast food at any time and he didn't like it when people touched his food uh how can people okay. how can people uh support the exhibit and, of course, the museum, other than coming to see it. I mean, do you have a way for people to make donations and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, our website is www.newseum.org. That's N-E-W-S-E-U-M.org. And you can buy tickets in advance, and you get a discount if you buy tickets online. Um, you can support the mission of the museum to promote free expression and the five freedoms of the First Amendment. You can see our today's front pages, which are on that website um, every day and also available on a museum app. So you can find out all about what's going on at the museum. Um, Today we just opened an exhibit about civil rights in in 1967, and um, we're always working on something new here at the museum. So hope people will come and visit. And it seems like everything there... Uh, whether it's intentional or not, seems to speak to both the era that it's from and right this minute. Uh, You mentioned 1967, and a lot of people are talking right now about the fact that we're getting kind of like it was in 1967, 1968, 
not so much specifically in the political realm, but just the fact that the country is going through a, a great deal of upheaval ideologically. And uh, it, it's just, a, it's an amazing, amazing place. Um, how can we support Patty Rule? Can we get a grassroots email campaign going <laughs> to get you a raise or a vacation in the Bahamas or anything of that nature? Go for it, Tom. Either, either or any of those things that sound, sound wonderful. Yeah, you're absolutely right about just the echoes. You know, in our 1967 exhibit, so this is 50 years ago, you know, it's kind of the rise of the Black Power movement and the Black Panthers. And what are they angry about? Police violence against Black Americans. You know, does that mm -hmm. sound familiar? It's the Black Lives Matter movement all over again. So it's really amazing how these stories echo. You know, they're not just history. They're happening right now. Um, the well, First Amendment is alive and well and being tested and, and, um, and expanded every day. And protests. I mean, uh, it's interesting to me. Uh, I have an uncle that was kind of a, a protester back in the day. And uh, his whole thing is, you kids got to learn how to do this protest, you know, because back then <laughs> protests were, were quite common, particularly on college uh, campuses. And as we just saw, what, two days ago at Berkeley, which it was kind of considered the, the birthplace of the, the protest in the uh, free, you know, free speech movement. Uh, another protest uh, in the last two weeks, we've seen three major, major, major protest efforts, and I don't think we're going to see it stop anytime soon. So the museum, um, once again, never, never more pertinent. I, I, I wish I had more questions, but you, you, you're psychic. You, you, you guessed all my questions <laughs> before I got a chance to ask them. Let me go through some, some of the other ones. No, I think we've, we've covered everything I could possibly hope to. Is there anything else I haven't covered that you'd like to discuss regarding the uh, Louder Than Words exhibit? Not about Louder Than Words, but you brought up a really good point about you know college campuses and, 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 and shouting down people who are espousing things that you don't like. That's not what the First Amendment is all about. You know, the First Amendment says... You can say something that I completely disagree with and that even offends me, but in this country, you still have the right to say it. So those kind of things that are happening on college campuses are, are troubling um, when you think that some people are trying to say, yeah, this speech is allowed, but this speech isn't. So all kinds of things are happening in the headlines today um, that relate to the First Amendment and free expression. So we hope people will remember those 45 words of the First Amendment and um, learn more about it and come and visit the museum or come to our website. Well, since you since you brought it up and you're smart, I don't I don't unless some of my guests are not smart like you are. Um, I I was troubled and it, it hasn't happened quite as much recently because I think universities quit wanting to be involved in controversy, but we had Condoleezza Rice, who was not allowed to speak on a college campus. We had various people who, when I was in college, believe it or not, you welcomed people of, of differing uh, beliefs and backgrounds, and it was almost considered an oasis, a place where uh, unlike the real world, you you could anybody could come and speak about anything and and there was no upheaval it was no of course somebody like that's going to come speak and what's the harm and now it seems like we've gotten into a, a, a bit of a situation where i don't like them they shouldn't be allowed to come here and speak um i'm, I'm sure your your uh, museum uh has as a, a very different opinion about that sort of thing are there um i'm do you have speakers there on a regular basis Oh, we do. Well, we absolutely have speakers here, and all, all you know, of all different varieties. You know, we're we're nonpartisan here. Our our thrust is the 
free amendment and or the First Amendment and free expression. But you know, you bring up a really good point. I mean, certainly that sort of attitude has defined this past political year, where people can stay in their own sort of bubble zones of listening to like-minded people on Facebook, on on their social media sites, and never have to hear from the other point of view, which really um, isn't, you know, doesn't help any of us bridge our differences. If you only listen to people who say the same things that you believe, um, you don't get smarter and you don't um, figure out how to work with the other people because there are a lot of people here who have very different ideas about things. So these are all questions that we're dealing with at the museum it's with programs. Um, we've got a education website, museumed.org, that teachers can latch on to all sorts of um, lessons, lesson plans about media literacy and partisanship that they can um, have students learn more about and understand more about. But these are all issues that are um, front and center for us here at the museum. Well, and I think to a certain extent, if you are uh, politically motivated about a certain cause or a certain ideology, not allowing the other side to speak is kind of uh, depriving yourself the right to look at their playbook, so to speak. It's like, well, if you really feel strongly about your own opinion, you should know the other side's opinion so that you can compare and contrast the benefits of yours, the benefits of theirs, the drawbacks of both. And I personally, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of that thing the First Amendment does to us all, which is it really makes us take a good hard look about how we feel about free expression because of the fact that uh, if Milo Yovanovic or Yanovlet, I can't pronounce his last name, I can't spell it either. Uh, if he wants <laughs> to come and speak, I feel he has the right to do that. But by the same token, I also feel like those people have the right to protest as long as they do it peaceably. And it's mm -hmm. it's like any more people fall on one or the other side of that equation. And and my own personal opinion is no, they both get to do it. They, they, they both are engaging in, in that protection. Am I wrong or am I right, Patty? Please justify I, me. I would, agree with, I, would, I would agree with you. I mean, the First Amendment gives you the right to protest and assemble uh, against something, but I think the First Amendment also says he's got a right to say what he says, whether you or I find it heinous or agree with it entirely. Um, so that's what it's all about. That's what um, we're living in exciting times for the First Amendment with you know, all the protest movements that have been erupting um, here in D.C. and around the country. So um, we'll, we'll be looking forward to these debates in coming coming months and weeks. Well, Patty, it is it has been a pleasure to have you. It's the museum. It's in Washington, D.C. The exhibit is Louder Than Words. And I, I got to tell you, this has been one of my favorite interviews ever. I can tell you right now, I very much appreciate your time. And you can come back anytime you want. Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation, too. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. Shazam! Just send an email to tom at thetomgullyshow.com.
We'd like to thank Patty Rule of the Museum for being with us. If you're in Washington, D.C., make sure and stop by. You might just want to plan a trip if you're not planning on being in D.C. You know, if you haven't been elected to federal office or whatever, just going out there on vacation because this is an amazing exhibit. You're not going to want to miss it. You can find out more by going to museum, that's N-E-W-S-E-U-M dot org. Thank you so much, Patty. Uh, really a spectacular interview and an amazingly uh, well-informed uh, and articulate guest. We need more of those to offset my lack of both of those attributes. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully show, not me, because, of course, that's a ludicrous notion uh, that you'd like me. But but the show, you know, like the show page on Facebook, if the mood strikes you. And, of course, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. That's where you can find out everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully Show store, which is also currently down. Uh, we'll have that up shortly so I can sell more hats with my logo on it. And, of course, we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it's free, it's for me. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka as well so I can increase my clout and cred ratings because if I get enough points, we're all going to go to the aces. And for some reason, this is becoming one of the more popular parts of the show where I sit here and ramble. i uh been listening to some some older music lately, uh, just in time for this wonderful trip through popular music and rock and roll with the folks at the museum. And uh, I listened to Disco Inferno by the Tramps. And just so everybody knows, I'm going to make a, a rather personal uh, admission here now. The bass line from Disco Inferno by the Tramps runs through the back of my head at all times. Uh, always has. Um, if you want to relate to me, that's, that's one way you can do it, is to realize that the bass line from Disco Inferno by the Tramps runs through the back at all times. I mean, even when I sleep. Um, so put that in your back pocket uh, and enjoy. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I've got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson takes us in with the Truth Wagon. Go to jjohnsonmusic.com. And each night, we take you out with Russell Alexander and the Hitman Blues Band. Go to Russell Alexander's fabulous webpage, hitmanbluesband.com. If you go to hitmanbluesband.net, I think you can still get a bunch of killer free blues songs just by signing up for their newsletter, which is very unobtrusive because that's how we roll. And we will see you next time. Well, the bug can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat or a coon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies But he don't want you
Too.